So turn with me to page uh, 668, uh, Matthew 14, verses 22 through 33 in your pew Bibles. Uh, page 668, Matthew 14, starting in verse 22, ending in verse 33. And this is the story of Jesus walking on the water. <laughs> really good story. And I want to preface by saying that when Jesus walks on the water and he invites Peter to do the same thing, um, he proclaims very clearly that he is the Son of God. And in doing so, he strengthens the faith of his disciples that were in the boat there. And thinking about going into Easter and, and this whole Lenten season, we, 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 we can say that practicing our faith in new and uncomfortable ways forces us to sort of set aside our fears and to put our trust in Jesus. Um, this story is immediately, uh, it, or immediately follows the miraculous moment of the feeding of the 5,000. And these disciples had just seen Jesus do this incredible thing, right, with a few loaves, a few fishes, and their, their, their faith bank should be at the all-time high, right? They should be like giants of the faith by now. But as fickle as humans are, <laughs> um, we see the bank is depleted pretty quickly in the face of personal risk and danger. So it says this, starting in verse 22. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. And after he dismissed them, he went up uh, on a mountainside by himself to pray. And later that night, he was there alone, and the boat was already a considerable distance from the land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. And shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake. And when the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. And that is the little phrase or the little sentence that we're going to focus on mostly today. Verse 28, Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said, and then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came towards Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. And then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly you are the Son of God. And I think you're going to realize why they say that after this sermon. So when Jesus walks on the water, we also know that from a former story that he calmed the stormy seas, you know, at that time, that he possesses the power to control the natural world and its laws. And the disciples had already seen that power back in Matthew chapter 8, and they had just seen him feed 5,000 people with just a few fish and loaves, and uh, not to mention all the other miraculous things that he did, Right? outside of those two events. So these guys, as I said, should be the giants of the faith by now. Uh, now. Now they're in this boat, they're in the middle of the sea, right? They're in the middle of the storm with Jesus coming to them, walking on the water, and they're seeing in this instance the power of God the Father and the power of Jesus to be inextricably linked. They are one and the same. And they should know this already, 
from previous experiences. But, as we said, we find that people are fragile in faith, that faith is built one experience at a time over a long period of time sometimes as of seeing Jesus work through the, 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 the difficulties and the storms that we face in life, that we quickly forget what he's done before. That like the other man in Mark chapter 9, uh, we say, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief, right? But we are to be obedient. We're called to obedience and, and choose to believe even when we have a hard time with it. And much more importantly, when we face the storms of life, it's important to be obedient. It's easy to say that you believe or you have faith in Christ when things go well, right? But what, what, what's truly inside of us comes out when we are under pressure. Paul Tripp gives a great uh, illustration towards this end. And he takes a water bottle like this one and he shakes it, right? And you see water flying out, right? And he asks, why did water come out of the bottle? And everybody says, because you shook it. And he says, well, let me change the intonation of my question. Why did water come out of the bottle? And everybody answers, because water was in the bottle, right? It's a good point. That is us. That is us. When things go well and life is placid and easy, we can easily say we have faith, right? And we can disregard addressing the things that are actually in us. But as soon as the storm comes up, right, and you start flopping around, your water flies out, right? We find that the storm reveals what's really in us. And we find that we actually have more work to do on our own hearts, we find that we actually need our storms to further our spiritual growth and development. Jesus' own choice of words in verse 27 points to the reality of his complete power, which you may not notice in a cursory reading of the, of the text or without understanding the original language of the text. Because when he states, it is I, right there in that verse, that statement is actually translated, I am. As if he said, you know, uh, take courage, I am, do not be afraid. And if you're at all a Bible reader, you'll note that this statement sort of echoes the language of Moses' conversation, uh, his interaction with God in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, when God said to Moses, I am who I am, this is what you're to say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. Now, when God gives Moses a name for which the people of Israel are to refer to him, the name God gives sort of conveys his dominion over all things, that the, the source of his power, his eternal nature, I am. That's it. I am. The self-sufficient, self-sustaining God who was, who is, and who will always be, forever will be, Lord over all creation right? And if you remember in that story, God had commanded Moses to go and to speak to the Israelites in Exodus, right, in that book. And, and, and if you remember, they were in the storm of slavery themselves. And God was going to use Moses to bring them freedom, to rescue them from that, to call them out 
to freedom once again. And Moses asked, suppose I go to the Israelites and I say to them, the God of your forefathers is, or, or your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what's his name? Then what shall I tell them? And that's when God said, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Now, we notice in our Bibles, typically that that, that name is written in all caps for a reason because it is God's sacred name. It is just a sacred name. Now in Hebrew, that statement I am is eye, right? Which means I will be, meaning God is the one who is and who, uh, who, who was, who is, and forever will be. In other words, God's existence doesn't depend on anything or anyone else. He simply is, he is the beginning and the end of all things. Come on, man, that deserves an amen. Can we say amen to that, right? But Moses couldn't say a yay, right, in the first person. He, so God gave him the form to which he, was, he would say it to the Israelites. He will be, or Yahweh, we're familiar with that word, and uh, a name which occurs over 6,500 times in the Old Testament. And this name was so sacred that out of respect, the Israelites actually stopped using it replacing it with the, the Hebrew term Adonai, which means Lord. And that is the name we now use in English quite often, but Lord in the sense of Lord of all things, of everything, right? But the Israelites went even further, uh, not wanting anyone to uh, read Scripture and accidentally say this sacred name Yahweh out loud, uh, they took the consonants from it, from it, Y-H-W-H, and they replaced it with the vowels A-O-A from Adonai, and, and they, made, they created a hybrid word, which was Yahuwah, right? And this was a word which no one actually ever was intended to use. It was just a visual reminder in the text not to say Yahweh out loud, but to say Adonai instead. And Christians come along and not realizing at first that Yahuwah was an artificial word, so it eventually entered into the English language as Jehovah. And you guys know that word, right? Now, it's important to remember that there were also two words for Lord as well. One, one uh, is Lord, which is in reference to Adonai, Adonai or Yahweh, the God of all things, Lord of all things. And then you have Adon or Lord, which is used for people with authority over other people. So when we see Jesus as Lord of Lords, we know what that means. So what Jesus here in Matthew 14 is saying, is he's saying, take courage. That's a great statement for our victim-filled day, isn't it? Take courage. I am. I am the Lord of Lords. I am the, was who, the one who was, who is, and forever will be. The one whose existence is not dependent on anyone or anything else. I am the God of the universe. So do not be afraid. Amen. Amen. We also remember Jesus made seven I am statements in the book of John. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the vine, and you are the branches. 
So Jesus is making really clear through these statements exactly who he is to the whole world, but, uh, but definitely directly to his disciples. Thus, when Jesus declares, take courage, it is I, do not be afraid, he is saying the courage that he calls us into isn't rooted in ourselves our abilities to withstand the storms of life or our strength in the seemingly hopeless times in which we see no way out. We, we often find ourselves, but rather it is rooted in the growing knowledge of who Jesus is, right? He's saying, take courage, I am. I am God of the universe, do not be afraid. I've got you in your storm of life. And we often find ourselves in a storm of life which seeming, you know, seems sort of absolutely hopeless. The darkness surrounds us. The waves overwhelm us. The winds buffet us. Maybe that's a marriage having difficulty or some other relationship that you can't seem to salvage. The loss of a loved one. School or work, just so overwhelming you can't take it. Our storms come in so many different forms and at various times in life. But especially when our most intimate relationships seem hopeless, it rocks us to the very core, doesn't it? The fear in those times is absolutely paralyzing. You can see absolutely no way out. Buffeted, that word in verse 24, is more literally translated as tormented. And that word is used elsewhere to refer to demonic hostility against people, sort of the spiritual storms of life, right? So whether your situation is literal and physical, as it is for our brothers and sisters in the Ukraine right now, with guns bearing down on them, or if it's just an emotional or spiritual uh, sort of nature, we are at times buffeted or tormented by the storms of life, by the darkness which surrounds us all on all sides, right? When we can't see the safety of the shore. Normally, you know, the disciples would have crossed the lake easily by now, even if they had waited for a little while for Jesus at Bethsaida, but uh, the considerable distance in verse 24 is literally many stadia, and one stadia or one stadium equaled approximately 600 feet. And John says in his gospel that they have rose, rode 25 to 30 stadia, three to four miles. And the lake was approximately four to five miles wide. So they're in the middle of this storm, at least a mile from the shore, if not farther, because they've got the wind against them. They really don't know where they are. It's still dark, and they can't see the shoreline. And without any, they don't have any other chance other than Jesus. That's it. And that seems to be exactly where he wanted them, right in the middle of the storm, to learn a lesson. Now, maybe they were sitting there in the boat thinking we should have waited for Jesus. Maybe they were thinking about Matthew chapter 8, lamenting that he had not been there in the boat with them at that, that time to just speak a word and calm the seas and take the wind away, to take away my storm. 
but he wasn't. He had been off praying someplace. Thanks a lot, Jesus. Now we got to do this by ourselves. And he can't get to us. And he's not here to calm my storm. But Jesus, we see in this story, the great I am comes out of the darkness of the storms of life when we think that he is nowhere to be found, when we think that even he can't get to us. It's before dawn, it's still dark. Jesus comes out of the darkness walking on the water and their first reaction is that he's a ghost and they're terrified, right? And when Christ comes to us in our darkest hour, when we feel absolutely overwhelmed and and he speaks something to us, we are at first usually afraid of him. And even more so, I think we are afraid of what he asks of us in that moment. We just want the storm gone. That's all we want. We just want it to go away. But he invites us right out into the middle of it to leave the only safety that we know of, our little bitty boat, our rickety little boat, and our buddies sitting there with us. Get out of the boat. Step into the stormy sea with me. I'm sorry, Jesus, but that's crazy talk, right? I'm not sure I would have been as brave as Peter on that day. I would have stayed at the boat, and I would have said, no way, Jesus, you come here, right? You come to me. And I don't care if Peter started to sink. At least Peter got out of the boat, right? And then, though, like us all, attention is diverted from the gaze of Christ upon us to the storm that has swirled so violently around us. And like Peter, we begin to sink, don't we? All the while, the great I am is calling us further into the storm to face it in faith. My daughter-in-law, Jenna, is a counselor for girls, young girls who have been sexually abused. And uh, the things that we do to each other, right? It's horrible. It's horrible. The story she tells me, it's just heart-wrenching. And she states that the only way to get somebody past the trauma of what's happened to them is to make them retell their difficult story in a million different ways. Draw it, write it, read it out loud, talk about it. Because the retelling of the story, this fearful story, this trauma, eventually makes it innocuous. It loses its power over you, right? Modern psychology has finally caught up and learned what God has already been saying to us, you know, all these years. The way to freedom is not by avoidance. It's not by avoidance, but it's straight into the darkness and straight into the storm, hand in hand with Jesus. It's courage. You know, he sometimes does come, come along and calm the storm as he did in Matthew chapter 8. But more likely, he takes us by the hand in our weak faith and he walks us right through it, doesn't he? Sometimes we need to go through the pain of facing the storm in the confidence of the great I am who calls us out of the dark, calls to us out of the darkness. And when we falter, does he leave us? No. He is patient And he simply takes us by the hand and he leads us through the waves. 
As elsewhere, the disciples often fail to recognize Jesus' power available to them with his full divinity on on display right here, sharply contrasted with the fearful humanity of Peter and the other guys cowering in the boat. In these defining times of trial, in the storms that we often face, we often doubt the all-surpassing power of Christ and what he can do in it. In Matthew 14, 31, that word doubt is the, the word distazo, an, an unusual sort of Greek word. It's, it suggests wavering and vacillation and unsureness and unsteadiness and all that kind of stuff. But it appears only one other time in the New Testament, and that is Matthew chapter 28, verse 17. And if you know me, you know where I'm going. Uh, when, Matthew, when Matthew acknowledges the presence of doubt after many have already witnessed Jesus' resurrection. Right up to the very end, some are still plagued with doubt. But despite that fact, Jesus still gives his followers their marching orders, their great commission. Matthew 28, 17 through 20, let's read it quickly. When they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always, always, always till the very end of the age. After all the miraculous signs... After him rising from the dead, clearly standing right there before him, after having eaten with them, you can't eat if you don't have a body, some still doubt. Such is the state of the human heart, right? We struggle to believe even while choosing to believe. We, we question our belief while choosing to believe what we question. Doubt is clearly not prohibitive. Followers of Jesus can still follow him, even in the midst of their doubt, just like Peter did, and he will walk out into the waves and take you by the hand, and he will lead you through it. You know, this scene results in the first proclamation of the other disciples that Jesus is the Son of God. And this proclamation is the acknowledgement that Jesus is who he says he is, the great I am, Yahweh. The disciples' faith is strengthened by his strength, his, his, his actions. In a recent interview, rock shocker Alice Cooper, guy I grew up listening to, uh, describes his return to the Christian faith, believe it or not, after years of alcohol and drug addiction. And that was the sort of storm of his life that he and his wife uh, saw no way out of. And Cooper describes growing up in a religious home. His, his dad was actually a pastor or a preacher. And soon he had became the prodigal son, you know, battling this alcohol and drug addiction, which he believed that he would, would end his life by the age of 30. Now, reflecting on his decision way back when to get clean and in reference to 12-step groups, he says, now, I don't have a sponsor because, you know, in 12-step groups, you have to get a sponsor to help you walk the steps out. He says, I don't have a sponsor. I have a Savior. Amen. Alice 
benefited greater, greatly from his, the support of his wife, Cheryl. And we see in that that God uses the community of believers around us in the storms that we face. With Cheryl, he established eventually the Solid Rock Teen Center in Phoenix, Arizona, the sort of a music school and all this kind of stuff. And it was actually Cheryl's faith which demonstrated the power of a little, just a little bit of faith in God to transform lives. She said this, she said, in the midst of that dark valley, I had to believe him, meaning Alice. I had to believe him when he said, I'm done. I'm done with all this. I didn't have a lot of faith that this was actually so, but I said, let's try it on these conditions because I believe marriage is forever. This is Alice Cooper's wife, right? Even the little faith, her little faith made that difference, right? The, the kind of little faith that Jesus hopes for in his, in his followers, and when Jesus walks on the water and invites Peter to do the same, he proclaims really clearly that he is the Son of God. And in doing so, he strengthens the faith of his disciples. God the Father declared Jesus as his Son at Christ's baptism, if you remember that. Jesus had already been recognized as the Son of God by the devil himself and even demonic uh, encounters, right? The disciples were sort of astonished with Jesus when he calmed the storm back in uh, chapter 8. But here, they worship him. They worship him. Jesus had been already worshipped in the gospel. But this is the first time that the disciples do so. They'll do it again at the close of the gospel. But here, they rightly proclaim him to be the Son of God. This is the first instance of any human recognizing him as the Son of God. Peter will echo this confession later in chapter 16. And they are learning through experience that Jesus' claims of himself were true. And they respond accordingly through worship. Practicing our faith in new and uncomfortable ways Stepping out of the boat forces us to set aside fear and put our trust in Christ. And Lent is this season of preparation for the celebration of Easter. It's a great time to step out of your boat and experience sort of the new spiritual practices which will challenge us and develop us and move us forward. So the question is, what's your storm right now? Maybe Jesus won't calm it, but maybe he'll walk you through it. How do you answer him in faith? Keeping your eyes on him despite the darkness and the winds and the waves of it. Because we learn here that he is able to lift you up even in your doubt, but we also learn that increased faith will enable us to walk through these things because of the great I am, because the great I am is calling us to himself within the storm. We understand that God works through others. Do you have trusted discipleship relationships around you with other Christians which you know, can remind you to keep your eyes on Jesus? 
to remind you that you, you serve a God who raises the dead, who, who heals people, who has, who has conquered sin and death in this life through his own sacrifice, who calls us to lay down our lives in service to others as he did. Do you listen and obey even when your emotions, everything in the fiber of your being says, cut and run, hide in fear? Avoid this. Knowing that courage is actually facing fear, not the absence of it, right? Jesus is in the storm. He's in the storm. And he will walk out of the darkness and he will bring you safely through it. And you need not be perfect in your response. That's not what we're asking here, right? Because you have a perfect God. Amen. Amen? Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that you are King of kings and Lord of lords. That you are the great I am. Come, Holy Spirit, make this clear to us. We want to stay in the boat. We just want to get to the shore. We just want to be safe. We just want it all to stop. It seems too much for us to bear. Either we're going through that right now, or we've been through that, or we'll be in that space in in the future. We all go through it. We all have our times where we just can't see the shoreline. And so we ask that you would remind us that you are there in the storm, that you come out of it, that you call us to yourself, that even when you ask us to leave the things that we feel so safe in, that it is actually better with you. We love you so much, and we want to walk this out. We want to be great witnesses to your grace and your love and your mercy to the world around us. So we ask for conviction on our hearts and joy in faith. And in Christ's name we pray, amen.